Well, if you would, go ahead and uh, take out your Bibles with me this morning. I want to ask that you would turn with me to the book of 3 John. The book of 3 John. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, please feel free to, to use one of those uh, provided for you in the seats in front of you. If you're using one of those Bibles, you'll find our passage this morning uh, on page 1026. 1026. I want to read verses 1 through 8 of 3 John. Verses 1 through 8. Here's what we read in this letter. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that they may be fellow workers, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, to send out laborers into His harvest. In another place He said, Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Many of us in this room are Christians. As Christians, we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. His patience is good. His wisdom is good. His righteousness is good. His mercy is good. And now as we follow Christ, we are developing more and more of an appetite for goodness. We are gradually losing the taste we once had for evil things. By God's grace, we are learning to to detest selfishness, to detest foolishness, to to want to throw away laziness and pride and lust and bitterness and a, a thousand other vices that we once thought were wonderful. We are finding gradually more and more that we prefer their opposites. That we prefer generosity. 
wisdom, a solid work ethic, humility, purity, love. We have tasted and seen these things in God, and now we want those things to be true in us. We are developing a taste for for holiness, and we want to grow in holiness. There are few things that can have a greater sanctifying effect on us than being actively involved in the work of international missions. When we take an active interest in the nations, we look away from our own problems, away from our own issues, and begin to concern ourselves with the greater need of the lost world around us. Unbelievers are consumed with themselves. Christians should not be. Christ has taken care of us. Christ is taking care of us. Even if we're walking through a terribly difficult trial, we know Christ is taking care of us. He will bring us safely to the end of our days still believing. And so missions teaches us to stop spending every waking moment concerned with our own immediate issues like we used to and to start giving ourselves in radical sacrifice to the needs of our lost world. Regularly considering the lost condition of this world regularly considering the persecution of our brothers and sisters who are in hard places, regularly considering the difficult work of those who are goers on the mission field, these things humble us. These things cause us to grow in thankfulness. There is a wonderful, sanctifying effect that takes place when we become involved in missions. We want to be holy. We get involved in missions. As Christians, we are also learning to love our fellow man. We believe that every human being is going to live forever. That every human soul was created to live for eternity. We believe that there is a place called heaven and we believe that there is a place called hell. With no apologies and yet with trembling we profess that there are billions of people on our planet today who will spend eternity being righteously tormented in hell. And they will suffer there. And their suffering will be just, but it will also be terrible. We deserve to be in hell too. But by God's grace, we heard the gospel and believed. And there are millions, if not billions on this planet, who have not yet had the opportunity to hear the gospel and believe. Love for our fellow man demands that we be involved in the work of missions. Spurgeon says, If sinners be damned, 
at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned or unprayed for. We love our fellow man. And so we get involved in the work of missions. Ultimately, however, our chief motive for being involved in international missions is love for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father loves His Son and has chosen to give His Son a bride, a kingdom of redeemed people who will reflect His image and love Him and serve Him forever. Christ is worthy of love. Christ is worthy of adoration. And God the Father has worked and is working and will work through all of history to bring about a day when there will be such a redeemed people who will proclaim worship to Jesus forever. This is the story of the world. And we as Christians are a part of that kingdom people. And there are still more citizens to be added to us. God has chosen to give to His Son people from every tongue, people from every tribe, people from every nation who will sing His praises. If we love our Savior then we should want to be involved in the work of international missions. He is worthy. He is worthy. It is the worthiness of Christ that motivates us. Now when it comes to missions, there are two distinct roles that a Christian can play. We've talked about this before. There are goers. And goers are not merely Uh, Someone who who goes off on a a short-term, two-week mission trip. A goer is what we call a missionary, what the Bible calls an evangelist. When we hear the word evangelist today, we think of someone who travels from church to church, uh, preaching revival meetings. But in the Bible, an evangelist is a man raised up by Christ to go to places where there is no community of believers, no church, and he preaches the gospel there. And if people believe and are saved, then that man helps to establish a church there. That man appoints elders there and helps the church have a solid foundation And then he moves on to another place where the gospel is not yet reached and does it over again. We call these people missionaries. And our prayer at Mount Hermon, it's my prayer, I hope it's yours, is that God would raise up such people in our midst. Is there anyone here in our church family with heart burning 
to see people who have never heard the name of Jesus here? Centuries ago, there lived a man named Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. How would you like to have such a name? He was a godly man and he said this. You see if it's how you feel too. He said, I have but one passion. It is Christ. It is Christ alone. The world is the field. And the field is the world. And henceforth, that country shall be my home where I can be most used in winning souls for Christ. Could it be that there is someone here who thinks of the countless millions in, in India and Indonesia and Vietnam and North Korea and the, the vast Middle East and, and they're walking in blindness and, and your heart beats faster as you, as you dream of going to them with, with good news. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But there is another role. Besides goers, and indeed, behind every one of these goers, there are to be many who are senders. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can people call on a Christ in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Romans 10. Now the truth is that the majority of us are called to be senders. Now, don't just assume that that's you. Don't just immediately assume I'm a sender. Examine yourself. Pray about it. Is there a peace in your heart? Are you sure after careful introspection and prayer that you were called to be a sender and not a goer? And you have to regularly re-examine this because God might have you be a sender today and a goer tomorrow. But most of us are called to be senders. We might go on a short-term missionary trip, but we primarily stay here with our local church family, fulfilling our various vocations for the glory of God, doing all we can in this place to support those who are out in the lands of darkness. What does the Bible say about senders? One of the most important passages on that subject is the one before us. It's in this often overlooked book of 3 John. And what do we find here? We we find John writing this letter, probably from Ephesus. And John is now an old man. Paul is most likely dead. Peter is most likely dead. In fact, John might even be the last living apostle at the time that this letter is written. The other 11, including Matthias, who took Judas' place, have all been martyred. John himself, tradition tells us, was thrown into a boiling cauldron of oil. And he would have certainly died had God not miraculously intervened. 
John was spared the martyrdom of the other apostles because he is the one whom God particularly used to train up the next generation, the the second generation of leaders in Christ's church. Now, certainly Paul had his Timothy. Well, John appears to have had an influence on a number of young men, particularly the most famous one being a man by the name of Polycarp who when he became an old man was famously burnt to death for his faith in a Roman Colosseum under Emperor Marcus Aurelius. And Polycarp influenced Irenaeus. And then uh, there was a path that went from John to a great influence on the church. Well, this letter is from the old Apostle John to a man named Gaius, a man who had been converted under John's ministry. This is why John calls him his child. We we think Gaius was converted under John. And John has just heard news from some traveling missionaries that these missionaries had received hospitality from Gaius when they were in his area. This past week, Merle and Libby hosted our guest, Mark Chansky, and made sure that he had all that he needed provided him with a place to eat and food to eat and cared for him, tried to make his time here pleasant. Well, that seems to be similar to what Gaius had done for these traveling missionaries. They had come to his house and he had cared for them and looked after them. And and now they come to John and they give this report to John about Gaius. What were the conversations like? What kind of life is Gaius living? These are the kinds of things they shared with John from their experience with Gaius, and it encouraged John's feeble heart. He was greatly encouraged by what he heard about his disciple. John says in verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. He was thrilled by the good report. Now, what was it that John heard that was so encouraging? Well, among other things, it was the fact that Gaius had given himself in loving support and sacrifice to care for these missionaries when they came to him. In verses 5-8, through John commends Gaius for what he has done. And he exhorts him to continue doing so. Here was an evidence that Gaius was walking in the truth. He was a true sender. I want to unpack the rest of, take the rest of our time, unpack this passage using three questions. These questions are shovels that help us dig out the treasure of the text. We'll do this quickly, but listen carefully. Number one, who is it we should be supporting? Question two, how should we support them? Question three, why should we support them? Question number one, who is it we should be supporting? Focus with me on verse seven. Verse seven. Here John describes the kind of men that these missionaries were. These are the kind of men that he commends Gaius for supporting. Notice first that these are men who have gone out. These are true goers. They have left behind their homes and the lives that they once knew. They have given themselves, at least for an extended amount of time, to being in a different place for the sake of the gospel. Consider what this means to have gone out. 
For so many missionaries, the cost of going out is the cost of leaving behind mom and dad. Going out means the cost of separating grandchildren from their grandparents. At least today we have Skype. They didn't have Skype back then. What's more, going out into the world had great risk. Traveling was was risky business in the ancient world. There were always threats at sea and the, the threat of being attacked on the road. There was the whole issue of shelter as you traveled. Holiday inns were not in overabundance in the first century. Most towns had an inn, but the inns were more like brothels and not the kind of place that a Christian could stay. And so these men were often having to depend on the hospitality of strangers, often not knowing until they arrived in the next town whether they would truly have a roof over their heads that night or not. There were the dangers of sickness and disease. Think of how many missionaries in history died young because they contracted a disease from the people they were trying to reach. You see, those who have gone out typically know better than us who have stayed home what it is to live by faith. What a wonderful instrument what a wonderful thing that, we, that it is that we can be an instrument in God's hands to meet the faith of these missionaries with the support that they need. Second, notice that they have gone out for the sake of the name. The passion that is burning in the hearts of these missionaries was a passion for Jesus. A passion to see the name of Jesus exalted. They longed to see Jesus receiving worship from all over the planet. This very day, this very morning, there are people worshiping Allah, people worshiping their ancestors, people worshiping idols and objects. And these are men whose heart burned to see these people pointed to the truth so that Jesus is lifted up. Jesus is worthy of that worship. Huge masses of humanity are living their lives for gods of money and physical pleasure and sports and so many other things when they were created to live for the honor of Jesus. The kind of missionaries we're to support are missionaries who have a burning love for Christ and a burning love to see Christ known among the nations. Paul said, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told, they will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Where is Jesus not known? Where is Jesus not being preached? That's where we need to go. Where is the darkest darkness on this planet? That's where we need to be taking the light. It's all about having the name of Jesus exalted in every tongue, tribe, and nation. This should be the heartbeat of every missionary we seek to support. Nate Saint said, People who do not know the Lord ask why in the world we waste our lives as missionaries they forget that they too are expending their lives. And when the bubble has burst, they will have nothing of eternal significance to show for the years 
they have wasted. What kind of missionaries are we to support? Those who love Jesus and are giving their lives for the glory of His name among the nations. Notice also in verse 7 that these missionaries are giving their lives to see the Gospel get to people it is not yet reached and they're doing it free of charge. They accept nothing from the Gentiles. This is not the way teachers did things in the first century. Ancient teachers traveled from city to city and charged people to hear their teaching. It was a common custom. It would be much like today in which people pay money to go to a conference and and hear people teach. But these missionaries, they weren't charging people to hear them. They were bringing the greatest news in the whole world to people who desperately needed to hear it and they brought it for free. Why? Because charging people would put an unnecessary stumbling block in the way of them hearing the Gospel. The Gospel is about free grace. The Gospel is about the great news of what God has done for us when we could not do it for ourselves. The freeness of the Gospel is captured in the words of Isaiah. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Missionaries charging people to hear the Gospel would begin to draw distinctions between who can afford to hear the Gospel and who cannot afford to hear the Gospel. But did Jesus come for the wealthy? Jesus came for all sinners of every socioeconomic class. Imagine Mike here going to Mozambique in a couple of months to to have Bible studies with university students and, and charging them at the door to come in and to be a part of the Bible study. How many that need to hear the Gospel would not hear the Gospel because they wouldn't want to pay the price? If unbelievers knew how great the Gospel is, and if unbelievers knew how desperately they needed it, if unbelievers knew what was at stake, they would sell their homes, they would sell their cars, they'd sell the shirts off their backs in order to hear the Gospel. But they don't know that. They don't understand that. And so charging to hear the Gospel would keep them away. So, oh, besides that, the heart of a missionary must not be monetary gain, right? The heart of a missionary is not, I'm going to be a missionary to gain wealth. Right? No, the heart of a missionary is passion for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if that's true, how are missionaries supposed to live? How are they supposed to take care of their families and have what they need to be productive in their callings? Missionaries need to eat. Missionaries need to have clothes. Missionaries need to be provided for. Missionaries need to be able to preach the Gospel freely. And the way that missionaries are able to preach the Gospel freely is that Christ raises up senders who support them and make sure they have what they need. Dear Christian, this is what's called walking in the truth here in 3 John. This is evidence that Jesus really has your heart. Are you actively involved in supporting those who have gone out for the sake of the name? 
If not, why not? What do you intend to do about it? All right, more quickly, question two. How should we support missionaries? I'm not talking about the, the practical particulars because the practical particulars are going to change with every missionary and, and every situation. But there are some truths here about the manner in which we should send out and support missionaries. So quickly, three aspects of the manner in which we should support missionaries. And first, notice in verse 5, we should, port, we should support missionaries as family. Do you see that in verse 5? Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. Here is one part of what made the hospitality of Gaius for these missionaries such a wonderful thing. He didn't know them. These missionaries came to his house. They were strangers to him. He was not previously acquainted with these men. But they came in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were doing the Lord's work, and so Gaius received them not as strangers, but as brothers. Mount Hermon, when you think of those men and women serving the Lord Jesus in various parts of our world, do you think of them as strangers, or do you think of them as brothers and sisters in Christ? This should color the way we think of them. This should color the way we support them. If it is a stranger who is dependent upon our help, surely we should want to do everything we can. But if it is a brother who is dependent upon our help, then we will go the extra mile. We will take a greater interest in their needs. When we're talking about family, well, that gets personal. Friends, we have family members We have church, we have family members out doing the Lord's work in hard places. And they are more our brothers and sisters than those of our brothers and sisters who do not believe. These are our eternal family members in hard places dependent upon sinners to care for them. We must not leave them out in the field helpless. This is a sacred responsibility we've been given as senders. As American citizens, we think of our troops who defend our nation. And when we get very upset, when we think of men and women who have left their homes and gone over to Afghanistan or Iraq, and they're there defending our country, and if we think that they're not being cared for by us, We want to make sure they have the best possible equipment for victory and for protection. We want to make sure our troops are well compensated so that their families do not suffer while they're gone. We want to make sure that our troops have the medical attention they need when they need it. We are serious about caring for our troops. We say shame on us if we don't care for them because they're the ones who have gone out. They've given up so much for the sake of our nation. Should it be any different for those who are laying down their lives in the battle for the nations in the name of King Jesus? We are citizens of heaven too. And missionaries are the troops that are sent out to fight the darkness of our world with the light of the gospel, and they need equipment. 
They need Bibles translated in the languages of the people they're trying to reach. They need food and shelter and clothing, care for their families, education for their children. We should be doing all we can for their protection to help them succeed in their mission. Remember, the spoils of the victories of missionaries last into into eternity. The glory of America is a wonderful thing, but it is a fading glory. It will not last. Giving your life for King Jesus is an even greater cause. Why would we not support those who are laying down their lives in this great mission? Notice we should support them with love. Look at verses 5 and 6. We should support them with love. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. In other words, the material support, the, the financial support that we give to missionaries should be preceded first by the support of our hearts. We are to love those whom Christ raises up and sends out. They are to be precious to us. Beautiful are the feet of those who go out proclaiming good news. We are to treasure them. They are our heroes of the church. When we pray, we remember them. In our spare time, we think of them and their efforts. We take their concerns as our concerns. When we have opportunity to be around these goers, we should lavish them with love. We take a genuine interest in their work. We make it our business to ensure that they know how much they are cared for and how much they are appreciated for what God is doing in them. We care about the mission. We care about the glory of Jesus Christ. These are the ones raised up. Our soldiers going out with the Gospel. Do they know our love for them? Think about how we honor our veterans. Just had Veterans Day. Had a wonderful opportunity with Jonathan to go spend some time this past week with some veterans from World War II. It was a wonderful experience. Should we not honor the troops in God's army? Third, notice that we should support missionaries in a manner worthy of God. Wow, verse 6, look at this. I mean, this this takes it to a, a whole new level. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of the governor. Worthy of the President of the United States. No. Gaius, when those missionaries come next to your house, you send them off in a manner worthy of God Himself. How do we understand these words? What does it mean to send them out in a manner worthy of God? I think what John is saying here is that as we bless missionaries, we are blessing the Master who sent them. In other words, we are not to care for missionaries in a half-hearted, inconsistent, shoddy manner. We are to care for missionaries in a way that reflects the worth of the One whose name they proclaim. 
We are to go over and beyond in supporting them. We're to go the extra mile because God is worthy of such love. Notice that our hospitality and our service towards missionaries is to be of the highest quality. We are to reflect God in the way we care for missionaries. We are to reflect the worthiness of our God and the worthiness of this mission in the way we care for missionaries. Mount Hermon, how are we doing on this? Think of the moss. Right? Drew was with us a few months back finishing up his work with Wycliffe translators. In fact, if they haven't already, they're, they're getting ready to go to France very soon. They may actually already be over in France. We're hearing a report uh, about them in a couple of weeks. Right? Soon to head to Africa. Think of the Edwardses. We think of the IMB that we prayed for this morning. We think of the, the work going on in eastern Romania. We think of uh, Christy Shivu and, and the work he's doing there. Dear sender, if you are convinced that you are to be a sender, not a goer, and there is no third option except for disobedient, so if you're convinced that you're to be a sender, what is your relationship like with these goers? Is there a relationship at all? Do you give a few dollars to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering and say, my duty's done for the year and they have no place in your heart, no place in your prayers. Their concerns are not your concerns. How is that a sender? It's a sinner. You know who I'm preaching to most? I'm preaching to me. Because I think we've failed on this. And we want to be a church that walks in the truth. Very quickly, lastly, why should we support missionaries? I've already seen a number of reasons why we should support missionaries. Uh, notice verse 5, very first word, we are loved. Right? John calls Gaius beloved, one who is loved. The truth is, not only Gaius, but all of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ, we are loved. We are the beloved. Ephesians 1 says, In love, God predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the beloved. Christ is the beloved of His Father. We are now the bride of Christ. We are now a part of that beloved. We have now been accepted into the same overwhelming, soul-shaking love that the Father has for the Son. We have now been brought into that love. Christian, you are greatly loved. I mean, there is no way for me to give you the height, the width, and the measure of God's love. All I can do is yell it louder. You are loved! Because I can't, I can't explain it. But I, if we are living in God's love, if we are living in the reality of God's love, if we know even the trial I'm facing tomorrow is love from the hand of God and He will bring me through it, then we can have the assurance and the security and the peace in our hearts that we need to look above our own problems and to care about the world. In other words, God has enabled us to do this by the great love we have in Jesus Christ.
Notice in verse 5, we should support missionaries in an excellent way for faithfulness' sake. Faithfulness' sake. As Christians, we, we like faithfulness. Faithfulness describes our God. Great is His faithfulness. Faithfulness means being true. Faithfulness means being trustworthy. And if we can be like our God by being a trustworthy support for His missionaries, this should be an attractive thing to us. Our hearts should jump at the opportunity to imitate our God. And just as God is trustworthy to us, so we can be instruments in His hands that He uses to be trustworthy for His goers. Dear Christian, what is your Christian life like? Is your Christian life like trying to stay on a surfboard? Are you constantly swaying back and forth, doing everything you can to balance yourself, afraid that any moment you may fall and be lost forever? No, it's not. Because you stand on a rock. You stand on a solid foundation if your faith is in Christ Jesus. He will not fail you. He will get you through every trial. And if that's the kind of faithfulness God has shown to us, and we are called to imitate that in supporting missionaries, should we not leap at the opportunity to be like our glorious God? Are we His image bearers or not? Let me close with this last one. We should support missionaries because it is in this way that we who are senders get to be fellow workers with them for the truth. See that there in verse 8? Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. We ought, we ought, moral imperative. It's not an optional part of the Christian life. It's not just something that super spiritual Christians do. If you love Jesus, you will love seeing Him worshipped by the nations. You will delight in the work of missions. You will be involved in the work of taking the name of Jesus to the uttermost parts of the earth. You ought, dear Christian, even now, what is happening in your heart? Is your heart inclining towards being the kind of missionary supporter I'm describing? Or is your heart coming up with every possible excuse not to be? Is your heart saying, yes, maybe I can find a way to do a little more. Maybe I can do a little more. Or is your heart coming up with every excuse for doing as little as possible? You see, this kind of thing reveals a lot about our hearts. It reveals a lot about our true love for Christ. But if you do long to be as useful to Jesus as possible, then hear what John is saying in verse 8. John is saying that by supporting missionaries, you get to be fellow workers with them in the truth. Yes, be a godly person where you are. Love your family well. Strive for excellence in all of the callings God has given you. Be a faithful church member. Be an honest citizen. But in the midst of living out your life for the glory of God, don't miss this opportunity. Be a fellow worker for the cause of spreading God's truth among the nations. It's the old analogy. The cinders are the rope holders. And we lower the missionaries down into the pits where they're doing the hardest work of all. 
We, with our prayers, the money we make from our jobs, the resources we have in this wealthy nation, we're holding the rope. And we must not let go. We must pray. We must give. We must listen to the needs of missionaries and do everything we can to meet them. And we should do all of this with a happy hearts, thankful hearts, that we get to have a role. That we get to play a part, all of us who were overlooked when God was choosing missionaries. By the way, we should be jealous of missionaries. There's a holy jealousy there. There is a sense in which we should say, oh, I would have loved to have been a missionary. But if you know God has called you to be a sender, then rejoice that you have a role. Praise Jesus for it. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Do not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Let's pray.